Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Joining us on the program in just a few moments will be Jenny Brown. Jenny is the author of the book Birth Strike. It's just come out, available from PM Press and at your local booksellers. It is a brilliant reframing of the debate around the so-called demographic crisis that is facing many advanced capitalist countries across the world. And what is that demographic crisis, you may ask? Well, women aren't having babies anymore. And of course, the conservatives have framed this as a crisis of the family. It's a crisis caused by rampant liberalism and the sex drugs and the rock and rolls. But of course, we know otherwise as leftists and socialists. And Jenny Brown reframes this debate as one of a birth strike. That is women having very few material foundations to start a family are just not having kids anymore. And this is a really important pushback to the neoliberal Sheryl Sandberg style of, quote, lean-in feminism. The socialist-inflected feminism brought forward in Jenny Brown's book is a much-needed antidote to the Hillary Clinton era in which we find ourselves. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. Everybody, stay tuned for that. Jenny mentions near the end of the episode that she has a Kickstarter that ends in just a couple of days. That link is in the show notes. People should check that out and fund this project if you can. Jenny is going to be traveling across the country, putting forward events, sponsoring reading groups around this book. And I think it's really important that this title ends up in the hands of not only women, but also men and everyone across the country in order to push back against this bullshit neoliberal feminist wave uh, that we find ourselves engulfed by. This is a materialist driven feminism, and it's one that is sorely needed in our society where mothers and families have very little support, if any, in raising the children that, uh, that populate this planet. As Amber Ali Frost said some months ago, whether you yourself would like to have children or not, look around you. The barbarians are already at the gates. <laughs> we live in a world full of kids. So what are we as socialists going to do about it? I think Jenny Brown has a lot of really great solutions. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder that this show is brought to you by the generosity of our patrons. If you like what we do here on Dead Pundits Society and you want to support this political project, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and check out the various tiers that we have. There's a $5 tier wherein you'll get all of the B-sides. We're going to be moving back to the A-side, B-side format that we had in season one. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy that. We also have a $10 level where you get the rundown, which is a news and views podcast from a socialist perspective that comes out two to three times a month. And we have the working class heroes tier, which is available for people who donate one hour's worth of their wage per month to keep our operations thriving. We love and appreciate all of our patrons. I couldn't do this without you. It takes a tremendous amount of work to produce, edit, host, research, uh, this podcast, we strive to put out three episodes per week. We're making a dive into video any day now. Have a beautiful studio set up here, and I can't wait to use it and spread that good word of socialism on YouTube. So check us out at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Subscribe if you can. If not, share us on social media. We appreciate that as well. 
All right. Thanks for the support. I think you're going to enjoy this interview very much. On with the show. Joining us on the line today is Jenny Brown. Jenny is the author of the forthcoming Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. That's out from PM Press on March 1st. It's available for pre-order, both the ebook and the hard copy of that book. It's a fantastic one. Excited to talk to her about this. She's also an organizer with National Women's Liberation. She's a former editor of Labor Notes. And she has another book that is going to be out late fall out of Verso, the Jacobin imprint there. It's going to be called Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. So much to talk about. Thanks for joining us, Jenny Brown. Thanks for having me. So uh, your day job, I suppose you might say, if, if you had time for one, given uh, these two book projects that you have coming out, you must be very busy. But your day job is uh, an organizer with National Women's Liberation. Talk to us about uh, that organization and what your role is there. Yeah, we're a feminist group that has roots in the 60s women's liberation movement, in particular, a group that was the first women's liberation group in the South, Gainesville Women's Liberation, and the legendary New York group, Red Stockings. And we're a dues-funded group. We founded ourselves 10 years ago in the middle of a struggle to get the morning after pill over the counter. You can join anywhere in the U.S. where we have 10 to $20 a month sliding scale. Our website is womensliberation.org. O-R-G. Fantastic. People should check out that organization. I chatted with Kirsten Swinth about her book on uh, for Feminism's Forgotten Fight. Talked quite a bit, not only about red stockings, but about the legacy of what we now call the second wave uh, women's movement and uh, sort of revivifying and resuscitating the real radical uh, materialist aspects of, of that vision and that project. And it's really exciting that National Women's Liberation is still uh, taking up that fight in, 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 the, in 2019, it's far from lost. So let's talk about your forthcoming book, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. I was really, uh, I learned a lot from this book. It really helped me to reframe some of the, some of the social problems that are framed as sort of problems of demography, right? Yeah, problems of populations. Right. And, and they get sort of uh, these, these, the way that these the way that these difficulties and these struggles get interpreted by the technocrats and the bean counters really obfuscates the fundamental class struggle and uh, women's issues that underlie them. So talk to us a little bit about how you first conceived of this book. Well, we first became aware that we ourselves in our group were on a spontaneous birth strike. When we started to compare notes, a lot of us were in our 30s, late 20s, and we we realized that the things that were necessary to have kids, like reliable health care, a job that had some form of paid leave, decent housing where we weren't, you know, living with four roommates, these kinds of things and the cost of child care, all of these things were really conspiring to make us either put off having kids that we wanted to have, or if we had one kid, we decided sometimes very painfully that we were not going to have another because the costs in our well-being and our time and our our mental health and in addition to all of the other costs were just too high. So that's when we started to really realize that this was happening. And, and we were working on a campaign to get the morning after pill over the counter, make it an over-the-counter drug available in any drugstore or, or supermarket. 
which started in 2003, and it was a 10-year battle. We finally won. In the course of that battle, we realized that really the struggle over abortion had become extended to a struggle over birth control. It was becoming sort of mainstream for political parties, in particular the Republican Party, to oppose birth control. Now, we had always heard that, you know, abortion was essentially a a political tool used by the 1% to try to get people to vote for their candidates, candidates who would cut taxes. That it, This is sort of the Thomas Frank story about, about this in, in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, where abortion is really, um, it's a pawn in a political, a larger political game. Frank even says, well, you know, they aren't even outlawing abortion because then that would remove this pawn from the game and they wouldn't be able to use it to calve off for example, working-class Catholics from the Democratic Party. So we had always sort of bought this political story, and as birth control became more and more under attack, and we include the morning-after pill in that, from both the Democrats and the Republicans, when when Obama was elected, his administration also opposed the morning-after pill. We realized that this had to be something deeper, and so we started to put these two things together, and we really felt that what has been going on is that really in the US we have been we have been doing all of this care work on the cheap employers and the establishment have been getting us to do this care work without the kind of benefits that they have in other countries so that was a real eye opener for us talk to us a little bit about the scene on the left right now with respect to not just kind of broad social reproduction issues, which have always been at the forefront of socialist feminist politics and radical feminist politics. But Jacobin, just to frame this a little bit and pull back, Jacobin Magazine released, I believe it was last summer, the childhood issue. And it took very seriously pragmatic and concrete needs of mothers and fathers and people who were raising children and really put these kinds of uh, issues front and center. And there was a tremendous amount of pushback and might even say blowback and scandal surrounding that issue from certain segments of the left that saw it as making certain kind of normative claims about how families ought to look or that women ought to be uh, mothers. And, you know, I mean, I think there, there we can have some really uh, nuanced and useful and, and, and comradely debates around those broad topics. But one of the things that perhaps uncovered is that I'll, I'll, I'll phrase this in the, the, the form of a question. Is there a kind of anti-natalism on the left that has emerged in these kind of broad and complex political and social forces that you described over the last 40 years? Well, our thought on that is that, of course, there are some women who don't want to have kids, and that's fine. When it gets to the point where we, those of us who want to have kids are unable to make it work because of our economic circumstances— that is really depriving us of an essential part of our lives. And uh, so I think I, I wouldn't say that there's an antinatalist. I think there, for feminists who, who were active in the 60s, who were constantly having crammed down their throat that, that motherhood was the only way that women could, could be a, a real person, that t- there continues to be that fight over motherhood being the definition of women. And I I do think that that is still a problem. So we still have to fight against that. But at the same time, we've reached a point where the birth rate has, has been plunging because we are not able to have the kids that we want. And at that point, we really are looking at 
the second rule of reproductive justice. The first rule of reproductive justice is that you shouldn't have to have kids you don't want. The second rule of reproductive justice is that you should be able to have kids that you do want. And the third is to be able to raise them in decent conditions. So I think that's, that's where we stand on that. And this notion of a birth strike and problems of birthing and families and mothers and fathers, really, I mean, it, it shouldn't come as, uh, to any surprise. This really cross cuts almost every issue that's important to the left today. And your book, if you just one were to peruse a table of contents, would see that it's a, it's a highly, I mean, to call it intersectionalist to not even do it justice. It intersects not only the various kind of needs of, of different types of populations, but also uh, it, it unites seemingly disparate countries. And you have uh, chapter one, you go, you have a very kind of international transnational breakdown of how this, this crisis over birth rates and, re- and social reproduction are impacting uh, uh, many different countries. So let's start with your framing there. I think the, you know, the ethical, the moral, the political, uh, the feminist imperative is quite clear. Uh, we'll continue to trace that throughout the course of the interview, but let's talk about the kind of technocratic bean counter way that I opened the interview with. How, how do they conceptualize this birth rate issue? Well, the um, th- and this is something that Red Stockings has been talking about for twenty years. There, I think, in the U.S., there's there's sort of a myth, um, which we call Myth America, that you, you that conditions here are as good as they can be. This is the richest country in the world, et cetera, et cetera. I think over the last 10 or 12 years, we've really started to break through that and show how other countries have much better provisions, especially in these areas for of healthcare, childcare, paid leave, shorter work hours, and wages. So we started to look at how those other countries arrived at those things. I think Sweden is sort of regarded as the the crown jewel of of social um, provision. And Sweden started in the 30s with a panic over birth rates. The conservatives' response was to make it harder and harder to get to get birth control. And the Labour Party, which was just about to be in power for 50 years, um, felt that it wasn't really necessary to do anything, and maybe even reducing the birth rate would increase wages. Into that stepped these sort of famous Swedish sociologists, Gunnar and Alva Myrdal. Mm-hmm. Alva Myrdal in particular was, is sort of the mother of the, uh, of the social welfare state in Sweden. They argued that in order for women to combine work and the, the caring job at home, that they had to provide more capacity for women to do this. So that meant initially maternity homes, paid leave, the ways that we think obviously that make it easier to have kids, childcare. So that was their response to what was what Alva Myrdal called a birth strike at that point in Sweden. Other countries like France and Germany have gone through very open debates about how can we raise our birth rate. And the answers have been to make it possible for women to combine work and the care work at home. Countries that make it hard for women to do that, and Japan and Italy come to mind, are experiencing even lower birth rates than we do here. So, you know, the the the, the summation of that is if you make it hard for women to combine these two things, women are going to choose work. They're not going to choose family overwork. And so 
if you want a birth rate that is sustainable, you're going to have to make some concessions to women's demands. The problem here is we really haven't been demanding very much. We've we've sort of been blaming ourselves when we have trouble with childcare and so forth. So, I mean, this is a real social and political and economic crisis that's brewing in many countries, uh, felt most acutely in places like Japan and, and also many places in, in the European South. Portugal and Spain uh, are two countries that feel this quite acutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, Italy has had some very repressive uh, policies that emerge from this. And, and talk to us about some of the kind of political trajectories that come from this, you know, perceived technocratic crisis. You, I know in Japan, uh, there's some right parties that have, you know, uh, sort of very common, seemingly commonsensically offered that. Well, yeah, well, we've got to we've got to outlaw abortion, obviously, because we need all the babies that we can get. Right. And so there's this really just atrocious uh, logic and these atrocious reactionary trajectories that come from this. Yeah. Coercive pronatalism, which we we have here in our country and is unrecognized, is also a big factor in other countries. In Japan, the anti-abortion efforts in Japan have not been that successful. But what they have been doing is making childcare more available, making it harder to fire women upon getting married or getting pregnant, which is very prevalent. And they've also been dropping their their almost complete ban on immigration. So they're they're very clear that this is uh, about increasing the working age population, which is declining in Japan at this point. In Russia, Vladimir Putin is constantly making arguments about in, in his speeches about how everybody should have three kids. We need a higher birth rate. And so in order to do that, they have done really both strategies, making it easier for women making pension payments for women, extra pension payments if you have children. There are even some states that have free refrigerators and cars if you have if you have kids. I mean they're really they're really upping that. And then on the other side, they have been making it harder to get abortion, not as hard as it is here, but they have been making it harder, instituting waiting periods, trying to get the morning after pill to be no longer an over-the-counter drug and this kind of thing. The thing that's really unique about the U.S. is that we are not having this debate about the birth rate. You hear it very rarely. But what we have is an almost completely coercive strategy, which is to make it harder to get birth control and abortion, to make sex education as least informative as possible. And you very rarely hear, I mean, we have we have been able to get very small benefits in in some cities and states we now have a little bit of paid leave but it's it's so small in comparison to you know 50 other countries have 6 months of paid leave or more we are so behind on this um and it's partly because we aren't recognizing that this is a fight over women's unpaid labor so you mentioned that in the United States, there's this implicit but very active coercive pronatalism. And might the left's silence on, on issues that really impact a lot of mothers and fathers and families regarding child rearing be a, a reaction against this coercive pronatalism? So as to say that, well, I'm just going to opt out of this uh, dynamic altogether and I'm going to prove my worth uh, some other way. The, that's the reality of the matter is that some, something between – 85 to 90 percent of women end up having children or, or being involved in caregiving in that in that respect. 
as a previous guest of the show, Amber Ali Frost sort of said with respect to children in, in society, she said, whether or not you want to have kids or not, you have to look around you and, and think to yourself, the barbarians are at the gates. The kids, you know, they're everywhere. They're, we're already sort of stuck right. with this. And, and so leading with this question uh, seems to me uh, really essential for the left today. I, I think that to some extent, those of us who haven't had kids and maybe wanted to at some point, which I count myself in that number, you know, we do, we do feel that it's our individual responsibility to get the right health care and, and get the right child care and maybe a job, that, you know, and we blame ourselves when we don't line those things up. So I do think that to some extent, we throw up our hands and say, oh, well, we didn't, you know, it's, it's not that important. Um, I have other projects I'm doing in my life. And that's that's fine. But I do think that we need to be honest with ourselves about what our economic situation is doing to us. And for women who have kids, um, who take that plunge, despite maybe some misgivings about how am I going to do this, who take the plunge, it is just unbelievable how hard it is to pay for all this stuff, continue to work in your job, make the rent. It is just it has just become untenable. So the crisis right now, I think we need to put the crisis back on the establishment because the crisis right now is being experienced in every family. And even if you don't have kids, your sister might have kids. You are experiencing that crisis because you are helping out. You're experiencing that crisis if you're a teacher in the classroom where there's just no there's no social provision. It ripples out to, to everything in our society, as you said. So I think that we really have to think about how can we make demands on on the basis of our unpaid labor is being misused and and overused by employers and the rich. <laughs> and we are not getting anything out of it. We're we're just being worn to a frazzle. So it really is a labor question. Yeah, I, I love this reframe. It's really fantastic. It's sort of blowing my mind a little bit, but it's also, it gives you a sense of optimism about uh, moving forward in this kind of uh, overwhelming socialist zeitgeist that's on the make in the United States and connecting some of these issues in, in a really meaningful and productive way. One of the analogies or, or the images you sort of invoke here in your book is, uh, comes from a former guest of the show, uh, Megan Erickson. Now, Megan Erickson Kilpatrick, who wrote a fantastic book on education, class in the classroom uh, that we, we talked on, on DPS about about a year and a half ago now. But you, you mentioned a, a flyer which was produced by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And Erickson describes this flyer produced by the USDA. It depicts an imaginary online shopping website modeled on Amazon.com with the image of a baby priced at $245,340. And a mouse arrow hovering ominously over the phrase, add to family? <laughs> Under the details section of this, you know, uh, imaginary Amazon page, the breakdown of costs show percentages allocated to housing, food, transportation, clothing, healthcare, childcare, and education in miscellaneous. Colleges, quote, not included. So this, this ad, you know, is uh, being circulated by the USDA to try to get people to think seriously about taking on this personal responsibility that you just... Uh, that you just outlined there in your previous response. But I think you invoke that, that flyer in my feeling when I read the, the, this uh, passage from your book was, was 
sort of, uh, it was almost comical. It was like, imagine that being a real Amazon page. Who would buy that baby? Right. Who, would, who could afford it? It's bananas. <laughs> you know? uh, so talk to us a little bit about that section and, and, um, and, and, and why is it that we don't sort of look at childbirth this way? That's, uh, Megan's book is great. Well, we, we look at having and rearing children as an individual responsibility. And this comes out in all sorts of ways. You know, libertarian commentators um, saying, why should I pay for property taxes for your schools? I don't have kids. You're the ones having kids. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding of how a society works. You know, we're told over and over children are the future, but in fact, children and people younger than us are the present. The age structure of society is 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 very important. So when you're 50, there are people in their 40s and 30s and 20s doing all of the things that are necessary to make a society run. So, and for the people who are benefiting the most in our society, of course, um, the billionaires, the 1%, however you want, the employing class, whatever you want to call them, they are really getting a great deal from the parents and particularly the mothers of America, right? We think it should be a collective responsibility. It's very clear already we've established that schooling is should be paid for by the state, and I don't think very many people would argue with that. I know that there are attacks on public education, but I think people understand that. That should be extended into the earlier grades, and for workers who are having kids, they have got to have some time to have them. I mean, this has this has gotten worse in the U.S. We used to have something for the unionized portion of the working class after World War II. There was the idea that that there was a breadwinner family wage, right? So usually the man, almost certainly the man in the fifties, would be paid enough to support his spouse and their children. Um, what has happened is as wages have stagnated and costs have risen, especially for healthcare, workers have been sending, you know, couples have been sending both spouses out into the workforce. That means that employers are getting 80 hours out of this couple where they used to get 40, and they're no longer putting anything in towards the family care job, in essence. Now, of course, it was a sexist way to do this, you know, the family care job shouldn't be only women and women should not be dependent on a male breadwinner for their livelihood. So it was all a very bad way of arranging it in terms of sexism. On the other hand, there was a progressive element, which was that employers were actually putting something in towards care work through this family wage. You know, when it happened, obviously, it was only a portion of the working class that ever achieved that. Now we're you know, a, a non-sexist way to get to achieve the same thing would be both spouses working 20 hours a week. That would be put us back to the situation we were in the 50s and 60s. If you, so you can imagine basically 20 hours a week from every person has been stolen to benefit employers. No wonder there are so many billionaires and we're struggling. Right. Well, well put. I mean, one of the things I think one of the real impasses or conundrums that the left is trying to face right now is 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 what you just mentioned there is that uh, on the one hand the family wage was the real crown jewel in this uh in this post-war quasi social democratic trade union backed left wherein you know largely male workers would go on strike 
by the way, supported heavily by their spouses, oftentimes doing much of the work during the strike, but I digress. <laughs> I love uh, you know, Harlan County USA you know, documents the activity of the, the wives of the miners uh, really well during strikes and stuff. So strikes were a family affair to say mm-hmm. uh, nothing of the, the fact that men were going to on strike to protect their women folk. I mean, n- nothing further could be uh, the, the case for sure there. But the problem is that the crown jewel was the family wage. And in an absolute, you mentioned that's just a fundamentally and foundationally sexist relation. Uh, but we haven't found anything that we can sort of wrap our heads around and agree to universally as a left in such a way uh, that would replace it. So you, you mentioned one alternative. I want to get back to the real arguments and content of the book, but to prefigure things a little bit here going forward, give us some more alternatives. What kind of uh, alternate vision should we have about how to fight for these things? Well, I, um, we say, you know, replace the family wage with a social wage, which is something that everybody in the country gets just simply because they're there um, and includes everything from health care to housing to a guaranteed income if you don't have a job. I mean, we in the U.S., we get these these things that are provided through a social wage as part of our individual jobs. Health care is a great example it's available only as a fringe benefit. And if you uh, don't have a job that provides it, you're pretty much out of luck unless you can afford the giant uh, deductibles and copays of Obamacare. But that's a fairly recent uh, development, right? So um, universal health care would completely remove Medicare for all, enhanced and improved Medicare for all, would completely uh, remove that pressure from workers to stay in a job to keep your health care, to get a job so you can get health care, to keep your job or not go on strike. If you have your health care through your job, this would be tremendous for all working people to have that detached from the job. So we think that a social wage is really the way to go and to replace the, the sexist family wage. So it really intersects with a lot of these sort of bread and butter, you know, socialist demands that are in the ether right now, be it uh, Medicare for all, uh, paid family leave, you know, the improvement of our uh, public schools, um, all of these types of things, which uh, why is it then, do you think, just if you might sort of venture a, a guess, take a crack at it, why is it then that feminism is seen to be, you know, talk about a fringe benefit. Why is feminism seen to be a sort of a fringe topic? On the left, when when in reality, these things cross cut really all of the really central and important and universal issues uh, that the left fights for every day. Well, gosh, I mean, my uh, my experience is that feminism has always been integral to the left, but I realize that perhaps other people haven't had the benefit of you know growing up in a town where there was a lot of active feminism that was very much part of the left. So that so so I I can see where it gets separated out. One way that it's been separated out is that there's a lot of talk about, you know, very high income women like Sheryl Sandberg having equality on the job. And that's defined as feminism. And, you know, Sheryl Sandberg is correct that women in tech have a lot of discrimination. And it's she's right to point that out. The problem is that discrimination on the job in those very rarefied jobs really doesn't begin to tackle what what women are facing. We do want to stop discrimination, but there are so many other things that are happening. And she, Sandberg, who I um, 
who I think of as an enemy in the in the effort to defend public schools because of what Facebook did in Newark and the and the various things that they've done. So I, I believe she's a class enemy in terms of that. She did sort of basically admit after her husband died that she had not really realized how difficult it was to be a single parent with kids. And this is a woman who has a billion dollars in personal wealth. So you can imagine um, what the rest of us are are dealing with. So even she realized that that her prescriptions were inadequate. The main problem, of course, with the Sheryl Sandbergs and I think also the Gloria Steinems um, for an earlier generation is that their recommendation is what women should do differently to achieve their goals. So rather than looking at how the system is oppressing us, it's um, it's very much more how you can lean in, how you can visualize success, how you can dress for success. It's just basically telling women that they should seek individual solutions. The problem with that is, of course, that women are smart and strong, and we, if there were an individual solution, we would all be doing that. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'd be leading the way and the rest of us would certainly follow suit as we often do with other realms of uh, life and society. No question. I think one of the, the, the first solution that's, that's put forward in, in the, in the face of this, um, in the face of this birthright crisis that we began the conversation with is, is the way in which costs of parenthood were transferred from the government to families. Uh, the the second wave women's movement in many respects really kind of had, uh, they they took issues of, of family very seriously. And that was one of their their banners of, of you know, d- discussing how family and children and, and social reproduction was at the center of their politics. But somewhere in the 1980s, you'd say in the crisis of uh, a political and economic crisis that swept the world, somewhere in the 1980s, the far right, or not, the, you know, just the right in general, was able to capture that rhetorical dominance when it came to talking about the family. You know, the, f- the first one that comes to mind is, you know, James Dobson's focus on the family, the way that these kind of arch conservatives have co-opted that discourse. Uh, talk to us about uh, w- what role that plays. Well, of course, this is a trick because what they really mean by the family is not what we think of as the things that would help a family. What they really mean by the family is to take all of things that could be socially provided, such as schooling, and push them back into the family, which really means onto women in the home. So, for example, homeschooling. Homeschooling is is a giant movement in the right wing. I mean, I recognize that not everybody who homeschools is right wing, and many are just trying to protect their kids from bad schooling conditions. But homeschooling is basically taking something which was a public responsibility and putting it onto what is almost certainly the mother doing doing the work. That's just one example. For, for the pro-family, um, if you read, as I did, so you don't have to, the endless rhetoric about of pro-family types like Rick Santorum, who wrote a book, a yeah. former Pennsylvania senator, who wrote a book called it takes a family as a response to Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village. What they're really saying is that if we want to strip this society of all the social provisions and the government programs, such as unemployment and education, we are going to have to 
push things back into the family and really make an emphasis on people having larger families. So it's really a trick. Family instead of government. Family in and of course, if you fill in women instead of family, it makes it sound like, oh, they're dumping everything on the women, which is exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. So family is code code language for women because you you, you wouldn't be able to get away with that uh, as easily. Is that what you're more or less suggesting? Yeah. I mean, I the, the number of men who are staying home to homeschool their kids is vanishingly small. So let's talk about the the history of this, uh, because again, as you say, if, if the left is to retake this kind of uh, the the political social common sense, wrest it back from the hands of the likes of Rick Santorum and James Dobson, we have to not only you know the aim is not to go back to some uh, you know golden past. Uh, the golden past was achieved uh, not only <laughs> due to the rest of the world being in rubble following World War II, which is not a condition we would like to replicate going forward, uh, but also is replicated on the back of an extraordinarily patriarchal and sexist society wherein the family wage limited the prospects and and, uh, and life chances and outcomes of, of women across the country. So let's go back to the history and kind of uncover uh, and unpack uh, the, these limitations that were placed on women and how women were first made to bear the brunt of social reproduction. You talk about the Comstock laws and these kind of uh, clamp down on abortion. Let's start there, if you don't mind, for us. Yeah. When I started researching this, I was really unaware that um, abortion had been legal, essentially, in the United States since independence. And it wasn't until the late 1860s and early 1870s that most states instituted anti-abortion laws that that applied from conception. So there were laws, but they mostly dealt with after quickening, which is around the fourth month. Before that, since, you know, in the absence of pregnancy tests, it wasn't really thought of as a pregnancy. You know, your period got blocked. You would take these periodical pills that were advertised in every newspaper and maybe you know, an herbal remedy or get an abortion. It it really didn't. It did not become an issue until the late 1860s, which is when um, the the doctors uh, who were trying to professionalize the the um, American Medical Association was founded. Doctors were trying to establish themselves as the scientific alternative to all of these midwives and grassroots the irregular doctors, as they were called, they were trying to, you know, institute a lot of medical education. They were, they still had a very bad record of killing off their patients, but they wanted to eliminate their, their main competition, which was midwives and irregular physicians in, in every town. So the main thing that these people were doing was abortion. So if they outlawed abortion, they could really eliminate a lot of their competition. So this became a big um, project for for the newly rising profession of doctors, and they they were completely successful in 1873 with the passage of the Comstock Law, which outlawed not just abortion but any information about abortion, any information about contraception, any tools or devices for contraception, any ri- written material about contraception, orally discussing it any speeches. I mean, everything was completely banned. It was a complete crackdown. And people were arrested and jailed under these laws. 
up through the 30s. So um, the, actually up through the, the early 70s, if you count a couple of laggard states like Massachusetts and Connecticut. So this was a complete freeze out of, of women being able to control, control their reproductive lives. And as a result, the birth rate continued to go down. In other words, women did yeah. not were not affected by this. Um, they continued to use the recipes that had been handed down by their grandmas. They continued to get, get abortions at their local abortion abortion providers. It really didn't work as a as a repression tool. But I suppose it's possible that the 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 birth rate would have gone down even faster without it. But the main thing here is that the ideology was designed to put women back in the home to make them have more babies. There was uh, a lot of fear of immigrants with the foreign religion, namely Catholicism, coming in and uh, outbreeding the the wasp natives. Um, there was also uh, a fear that we would not have enough uh, troops to fund the new to uh, supply troops to the our newly imperial armies, um, which were headed off to the Philippines to to start the U.S. empire. Um, so this was all, and it was all very openly debated. Um, that was a surprise to me that, that we had had these debates before. The main thing that got traction was that when the, when the doctors were trying to um, eliminate abortion as, a, as an option, was that it was no longer unmarried women who had had a you know, an unfortunate affair and had, had gotten pregnant. It was married women who wanted to control how many children they had. And this became very visible by the 1860s and 1870s. So that was, that was part of it. The other thing that was going on, of course, was the women's rights movement was, was gaining strength, founded in 1848. And then by the 60s and 70s, there was a big pushback against the women's rights movement, women wanting to have their own their own economic independence, property outside of the control of their of their husbands and fathers, and so so it was a, a backlash against that. So then we had a hundred years of illegal abortion. Right. So I've talked about those coverture laws uh, in previous episodes. It's been a while now; been about a year now. Uh, newer uh, newcomers to the show may, may have missed those episodes, but I mean, this is a really fascinating era where you see the modernization of the state and its institutions and its legal apparatus, which, you know, modernization is generally seen to be a good thing. This was a, mostly a retrograde. I mean, it really sort of set, turned back the clock in many ways from some of the advances made in the mid 19th centuries, particularly with respect to the women's movement in uh, that, that early, early women's movement. Uh, but this is where you see these sex panics and these panics around race and reproduction really show their heads in really nasty and ugly sorts of ways. Talk to us about how the militant uh, trade unionism and the radicalism of the 1930s sort of altered these relations uh, a little bit. Well, the socialist movement was was very supportive of birth control. And you, it, you can read, uh, for example, I Elizabeth Gurley Flynn writes about this, where she would visit the, the wife of a minor who had maybe eight children and was just completely exhausted from unrelieved childbearing. And she argues that that birth control, and, and I expect probably she also means abortion because that was the most effective birth control of the time, 
is really a working class weapon to just relieve the burdens of working class families. So that's that's maybe, you know, 1915, this starts to really be an argument that people are making. And I, and I think that that up through the 30s, people understood that the ruling class wanted us to have more kids. We were fighting that with birth control and abortion. There was the socialist newspaper in New York, The Call, carried um, Margaret Sanger's columns. Eugene Debs wrote Margaret Sanger when she was in exile and said, you know, if you if they try to railroad you, we can we can get together some some armed men and and make sure you don't get locked away for life. I mean, there there was a lot of solidarity within within the left around birth control, getting birth control available to to working people. At the same time, Emma Goldman is doing her birth strike lecture where she talks about birth control. This is all this is all sort of an organic part of the left of all different aspects of the left. And you can see it running through. And it's very clear that, you know, for working class families, it was not possible to to raise as many kids as they as pregnancies as they had. I mean, that was just that was just unrealistic. That was one of the things driving women in, into the ground. Talk to us a little bit about the racial aspects of the birth strike and the this kind of coercive pro-natalism, which is very contradictorily combined with this clampdown on on uh, social provisioning, uh, which would you know logically help the pro-natalists. Uh, however, there are, these, there are these racist and uh, xenophobic and sort of ethnically charged undertones to to the way that folks have clamped down on social provisioning, uh, because as we know, the the historical trajectories here that uh, black and brown folks in the United States find themselves in the lower rungs of the income and class uh, structure. And uh, therefore, you know, we have a lot of narratives about uh, welfare queens and people sort of taking advantage of the government and, and you know, all of these narratives that arise in the, in the ugly 1970s and 80s that uh, really represent the success of the conservative movement coming out of, say, the 1940s and 50s in the United States. So talk to us about how that, how the racial elements and the immigration elements sort of mixes in here. Because I said, you know, this birth strike, it really just cross cuts just about every damn issue over the past 100 years, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so probably we could trace the worst and most um, galling coercive pronatalism to the days of slavery when enslaved women first of all the the power structure made a law that said that any child of an enslaved woman was themselves property of the of the owner mm-hmm. um even, that's true even if their father was free so that created especially when uh when the slave trade was ended that created enormous pressure by slave owners to force enslaved women to to have kids with you know uh, just horrendous results. However, as there always is with this kind of thing, there was a great deal of resistance, and scholars have traced all kinds of evidence of enslaved women giving each other abortions, using herbs to to uh, prevent pregnancy or or cause miscarriages, midwives conspiring with women to to stop pregnancies. So there was an enormous amount of resistance within that really awful system. But bringing it up to date, what we see is 
is that for women of color and poor women, instead of assistance for having children, for example, housing subsidies or forcing the landlord to fix the building or, you know, really reliable health care or child care, what we've seen is, is the enforcement model that we've, you know, the sort of carceral state coming towards child rearing. And, and so the picture, I think, is most clearly drawn by Dorothy Roberts in her book, Shattered Bonds, where if you don't have the money to provide a healthful environment for your child, especially if you're African-American, you're, you are likely to experience enforcement coming down against you and you may have your children taken away, put into foster care where the foster parents are actually receiving a stipend to take care of the children. Of course, they would never dream of giving that that stipend to the, the natural birth parents. Unreal. Um, Unreal, and it? and it's, They must be punished. They have to be punished, right, for being unfit mothers. Exactly. And all of this, I think, is it's partly made possible by racism, right? People don't think it'll happen to them because they think it only happens to black folks. So the white folks aren't standing up against it. But it's also made possible by this idea that children are your individual responsibility. If you are unable to care for them, that was your choice. You made a choice to have them. And you really are guilty of, of doing a terrible thing. I would like to completely turn around that that view and say, look, parents are doing this incredibly important part of our society. They're, they're providing this very difficult, very time-consuming and expensive service that all of us are benefiting from. They're providing all this love and care to these children. And so we're benefiting. So the society should, in turn, be making it more easy, making it possible to do these things in, an, in a, a a way that is decent and and not fraught with stress and deprivation. Part of the debate around Social Security has been, oh, well, we don't have enough kids to uh, to support the elderly. Now, that's mostly a lie, but the part of it that's true is that, yes, the age structure of the, of the society does matter for all of us in the society. And... Um, so that means that parents are doing a really needed job, and we need to be supporting that, those of us who don't have kids, and in particular, employers who have been benefiting from this economy disproportionately for, and really disproportionately for the last 50 years, need to be putting in resources to make child-rearing something that's possible and, and actually something where we feel that we are giving to our kids what they really deserve. You mentioned in the book that immigration really or the immigration debates in the country really stem from this low birth rate, quote, crisis, and that immigration offers a way for us to provide a ready-made and malleable and, f quote, flexible, very barbaric sense, a form of uh, sort of labor, which rectifies this, this shortcoming. As you mentioned early on, you know, I think most societies, you need an average of 2.1% births per, per couple to sort of uh, replace and replenish the existing society. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the U.S. rates is somewhere around 1.76 right now. Um, so That's we're, correct, yeah. 
So we're, we're below the level of, of being able to replace our population, which has a wide ranging uh, degree of effects from, you know, the tax base, uh, things for, for um, social security payments. Although, by the way, social, social security is doing just fine, everybody. <laughs> Don't buy the smears and the slurs. But, but nonetheless, it's still a social uh, administration problem when you have a declining population. And so immigration is one way to, to solve that uh, in, in a really barbaric way. Uh, talk to us about that section of your book. Right. Well, there is there is a split, I think, in um, in the establishment over immigration right now. And um, But I would say that for employers, immigration, uh, they basically love immigration. Most employers, what they – that is not to say that they want immigrants to have rights, of course. Um, so, so they're – favored uh, method of immigration is what is euphemistically called a guest worker program, where the workers, first of all, it's just the worker. There's no family reunification possible. So just the worker comes and has to live alone away from their community. And the employer is able to deport them as soon as the job ends, or if they don't like how fast they're working, if they don't like that they're organizing a union, whatever it is, they can deport them completely back out into to their to their country. So this is obviously an employer's dream, right? Workers who are completely dependent on their jobs for everything and and can be kicked out of the country if they if they don't comply in every way. And you can hear, for example, Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida and presidential candidate. Jeb Bush wrote this book called Immigration Wars, in which he's extremely explicit that they want to get rid of family reunification because who are all these family members? People bring their parents. They're old. They're not productive. They're going to use social services. All we want to have come in is the worker. It must just be the worker. And so it's very clear what what is going on there. Essentially, I think that we need to flip the narrative about immigration where immigrants are supposed to be so happy to come to the United States because it's so great. They're They're supposed to feel that the United States has given them so much and actually look at it as immigration is a ripoff of the communities and mothers and parents in the sending countries. Those countries have through both public and the families, have raised and educated those workers, nourished them through their through their formative years, and then they send them off to benefit U.S. employers. David Bacon writes very movingly about this in The Right to Stay Home about Mexican towns where the working age population is has had to go to the U.S. in order to survive. And so the towns are basically devastated. There is no working age population there. It's grandparents and kids. And so we the cost, the terrible cost to the sending countries is often not calculated in, in our thinking about immigration. And then I mentioned that there were two factions. And then there is a faction which is, you know, on, on occasionally represented uh, by the Trump administration. So certainly Pat Buchanan uh, former Nixon speechwriter Steve King, who is a congressman yeah. from Iowa who yeah. was recently dinged for being a racist. 
he has been he, he has by the way been tweeting about how we cannot rebuild America with somebody else's babies. He's been doing that for years. So Pat Buchanan wrote a book uh, about how called the death of the West, just to give you an idea where he says, you know, Western man is, is good. If it's up to these feminists who are not having babies, Western man is doomed. So there's a, a very, whistle, bark. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's very clear that, that their priority is white babies. They want Euro American women to have more white babies. Now let's not get all excited that they care about the white working class because clearly they don't. But there is a def- there is definitely an advantage to them to having white people because white people tend to identify with white people in the power structure, and you know that's how racism works, right? So so the the um, obviously they're not, they they don't want white people because they love white people so much. They want white people because they're more compliant and less likely to to object to their treatment because they have this misunderstanding of how things go because they're seeing themselves as white and they see their boss as white and they see the politicians as white. And then they sort of think that they have their best interests in mind. So, so that's the trick that's being used against white people in the U S but it's very clear that they're, that this is a priority for that faction there. There, I would say it's a, it's sort of a, an 80, 20 split among conservatives most conservatives who are um, aligned with with big corporations are perfectly happy to see immigrants come in. They don't particularly care. They would like to be able to deport them instantly. The economy turns, and they would like them to not have rights. And then there is a twenty hardcore twenty percent who I think are really basically it's it's a racist it's a racist priority for them, and so. You know, we we have to that bears watching because uh, that is that is a really um, dangerous, I think, element of what's been going on right now, and with all kinds of ramifications for just everything from brutality on on the job, street uh, people be getting beaten up and uh, on the street. Um, it's it's you know it's it's very very toxic. Right. I think, you know, th- this this really overlaps with the the kind of challenge presented to the left right now. And, you know, this this cross cuts your entire book here. And you talk about this a little bit uh, in places like, say, Turkey, uh, obviously Putin's Russia and, and in the United States, it looms large. Of course, uh, in Turkey, Erdogan is hell. Erdogan is, is not even uh, as articulate as, or, or let's see, it's not even as tactful as a guy like Trump. I mean, Trump looks like a very uh, careful uh, PR master compared to Erdogan, the way he sort of speaks about social issues over there. And what you have here is this kind of, this, it, there's this conflict between the imperatives of what we might call neoliberalism that have lifted up women in a in a pyrrhic sense, you might say, these pyrrhic victories have lifted up women and forced them into the workplace it's encouraging uh, them to go out and seek uh, higher education, which is making them el- eligible for, for corporate positions. In a sense, it's kind of trying to, to uh, privilege the sorting mechanism uh, to, to basically glean the talent uh, for these corporate boards and, and these, these jobs that uh, require international trade and all the rest of it. And as you mentioned, these women are choosing careers over family. 
And so the reactionary, the hardcore reactionary forces in these countries are focusing on things like blood and country and motherhood as a responsibility uh, to the nation and shirking one's responsibility. But what that does is it sets up this uh, dichotomy between the imperatives of neoliberalism as the kind of progressive force in society versus the, you know, obviously reactionary forces represented by the likes of Erdogan and, you know, Pat Buchanan. Um, now, how, do, how does the left carve out its own space, its own vision for what progress um, and, and justice ought to look like in the face of these kind of, you know, Davos style, uh, faux progressive narratives that come from the neoliberal class? Well, the way the feminist movement has always done it is to really look at our own experience. And and in the book, I, I have a chapter of women talking about their experience with having kids or deciding not to have kids. That, we find, is is a really important fuel for the movement to really get deep into what what we want our lives to be like and, and what are our hopes and dreams for our society. Because Right now, we're being given two bad choices, right? As you say, we we get um, you know the the neoliberal Democrats who only start to look good in in relation to the conservatives are really reactionaries and right wingers. But I I really think that for for us to start to talk about these these issues with parenthood is a real opportunity for the left to to feel. For people to feel the relevance of these things, because families are really struggling, and if we can start to demand things that will really immediately benefit them, I think that's just obviously in the case of healthcare is just wildly popular. You know, it, it's if we don't address these, and I and I think it's very clear there's an easy litmus test for. Is somebody willing to go up against the power structure? And that is, are they willing to eliminate health insurance companies from the healthcare system? Because if they're not, then it's just rearranging deck chairs, right? And so I think that, you know, that is a first place to look. We also, I think, you know, we have dreams for our kids, we have dreams for our families of how things could be better, that it's not going to always be this terrible grind and stress and and worrying about whether you've done the done well on this test or you know it just school has become this terrible um this basically stress factory for for kids you know and this is not what we want for our society this is not what a society is all about that's not what life is all about is to constantly be in a rat race you know we 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 need to be demanding the 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 roses, not just the bread. And uh, so that's, I, I think, starting to talk about how family life could be different and how we could really, we could really have free time and, and, you know, the wonderful things in life. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't have to be this way. I think talking about that is, is, is really powerful. And, and I put some consciousness raising questions in the back of the book, and we're urging people to do consciousness raising groups around their decisions to have kids or not to and and whether they change their mind how things have have worked out for them and the things that they would really like to see different and um so i think that's a that's a powerful way for people to really focus on what we want and how can things be different 
Well put. I like to end the show with either a call to the barricade or a real kind of practical uh, action step. And you've, you've really given us both there in that sense. And, you know, uh, the, the call to the barricade is clear. Uh, the practical action in terms of I think it's really crucial that uh, every, every, anyone who, who can uh, get this book and, and use it as a, as a, in, a, in the context of a study group to talk about how it might influence the work that your group is doing in your community and the kind of advocacy and education uh, that you're working for. But let's, let's, let's wind up then in a slightly uh, 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 relatively similar, but uh, maybe more specific place here. You've mentioned a couple policies and a couple uh, demands uh, that you'd really like to see the, the movement make right now. Uh, what are some of the less, uh, less talked about, lesser known demands? Medicare for all, of course, we shouldn't take it for granted. The, uh, the, many of the leading Democratic candidates right now are doing their damnness to water that down uh, beyond all any and all recognition. But what are some of the other policies that you would really like to see as litmus tests for, say, you know, certifiable Democratic Socialist candidates in the way that, say, DSA chapters, for example, are thinking about endorsing or not endorsing certain candidates going forward? So healthcare is at the top of our list. Um, universal child care, uh, like, free like the public schools, um, unionized like the public schools, because child care teachers, as we know, are the lowest paid profession in the U.S. We also are looking at long paid leaves for both parents these should not it should not be exclusively for women which is uh i think one of the things that uh one of during the trump campaign they bandied about a you know an 8 week paid leave for women only that that obviously just dumps more work on women and and separates men from the process of child rearing which um is is both bad for women and for the kids and for the guys. So, um, so, we, and we think that, you know, six months, it should be the minimum because so many countries have 50 countries have six months or more paid leave and in France and Sweden, it really adds up to about three years. Um, and then we also think we should continue to fight for a shorter work week. This is, uh, this was very hard. I was involved in, uh, in trying to have a labor party in the in the U.S. in the 1990s, um, it came out of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union and the United Electrical Workers. And when you talk to people about a shorter work week, they just automatically hear that they're not going to get enough, they're not going to get paid for for all the hours, right? So people are in a struggle to get more hours. So when you say shorter work week, they think, "Gosh, yeah. I won't be able to live," right? Yeah. So. So very much we need to talk about how how the work week has been lengthened, both through this switch from the family wage to no, no family wage and through just unpaid overtime, all of the demands, having to have two jobs in order to make your rent, all the ways. So we really need to talk about how can we shorten down the work, the work day. And it's been done in other countries. In, in Germany, they are working 10 weeks fewer a year than we are here 10 weeks can wow. you imagine what you could do with 10 weeks a year um wow. so it just it, it's mind-blowing how much we have been hoodwinked into thinking that we that we have to work these uh, that 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 we have to tolerate these conditions so i think a shorter work week is because really our struggle you know the struggle for working people 
down through the ages has been for time, for our own time. And, um, and this, this is, we see this in, in the crisis in, in our families. Um, and we see it in a crisis as a crisis in our lives. So I think, I think the struggle over time really needs to be brought to the forefront. Well put. A lot to think about, a lot to mull over in terms of how we conceptualize our politics and our struggle and the things that we're fighting for and the way that we argue for them. And I really love the way that this book places front and center the real everyday materialist demands uh, faced by the many and and pulling the left out of its uh, little sort of academically oriented enclaves and and forcing us to grapple with the needs of, of the vast, vast majority of people. Uh, which also, by the way, happens to include the most marginal and, uh, and oppressed in, in this society as well, disproportionately so. So, uh, you know, really cross-cutting stuff here. Uh, fantastic read. People should uh, go ahead and pre-order this book or pick it up today. It's available March 1st. It's called Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. Jenny Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Thanks. And I should add um, that we have a Kickstarter going for right. um, for me to talk. Uh, uh, we're doing a book tour and we're starting consciousness raising groups around the country around the, the book. So if you want to help us with the Kickstarter, you get a free book and uh, just search Birth Strike on Kickstarter. That's right. I'll place that link in the show notes so that people don't miss it. And we'll tweet it out on our social media networks as well. Again, Jenny Brown, it's been a real pleasure. Come back and talk to us next fall when your uh, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now book uh, emerges. I will. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to Jenny Brown for enlightening us uh, so kindly. We did that interview a couple of weeks ago. And uh, what we failed to mention is that that Kickstarter ends in about 24 to 48 hours, I believe. So if you're looking to donate to that project, you want to help Jenny travel across the country and to put this book in the hands of people who desperately need it and can put it to practice in the real world, which is what we're all about, check out that Kickstarter. I'm going to have the link in the show notes. I've got another bonus episode coming out later this week. Everybody look forward to that. We're going to be continuing the theme of socialism and feminism, working to define and put forward a materially driven feminism, one that far transcends this bullshit neoliberal lean-in model. It's heartening to see socialist feminism take off the way that it has for the past several years, but I got to be honest, it's a little frustrating because a lot of the people who call themselves socialist feminists these days are still far too little influenced by a materially driven form of socialist politics. Jenny Brown's book goes a long way in rectifying this shortcoming, and we're going to be talking with Kirsten Swinth later this week to talk about her book, which revisits the legacy of the second wave women's movement coming out of the 1960s and 1970s. And guess what, folks? Surprise, surprise, the second wave feminists out there uh, weren't the glorious items of the world. They were fighting for families and the material needs of all. So a very different reality from the inherited mythology of what people typically think about the second wave movement. And surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, second wave feminism was also multiracial. It wasn't just a bunch of upper middle class white women. But anyway, everybody look forward to that episode. It's going to be a good one. And once more, if you like this episode and you want to support this project and keep us up and running, 
head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. I hate giving the spiel on a daily basis, but I got to do it, folks. We are crowdfunded. It gives us the freedom and the flexibility to take on whatever topics we desire. We don't have any advertisers to answer to. And, uh, you know, fortunately for you, I'm not doing obnoxious ad reads about penis pills or hair replacement products. So, hey, lucky you. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. That's the website. Head over there. Subscribe if you're so able. Tell your friends and family. Share us on Facebook. Share us on Twitter. You know what to do. All right. Until next episode. Dead Pundits. Out. Oh, this new crazy mother...